Welcome, welcome. <laughs> welcome to Mama Mystery. I am the host, the owner of this show, the girl that does all the research, all the writing, and delivers you high quality material. And there's also my What's husband. your name? You oh, didn't I'm even Kelly. give him your name. Nice intro, dummy. <laughs> Guys, I'm 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 uh, her husband. I uh, contribute absolutely nothing to this show, and my name is Austin, and I'm just here for shits and gugs. <laughs> <laughs> and you barely do that. I barely even do that, even though you just gigged. You know what? If there's noise in the background, it's because he likes to hold his microphone rather than set it on a nice, smooth surface like me. So if there's a bunch of background noise, you can just address your complaints to Austin, period. <laughs> Good boy. Where was that going? Let's get into the show. Welcome. Okay. I'm glad you're listening, folks. Thanks We're so for glad you're here. Thanks happy for Monday. hanging out with or us. Happy Sunday if you're a Patreon, because they are getting it early. Oh dang, Patreons are they know where it's at? Yeah, we we actually have some new Patreons to thank. So here we go. We have Molly Pearson, Ali Johnson, Jana Larue, Taylor Guest, Carrie Bacchetti, Alexander Johnson, and Melissa Ferris. Appreciate you all. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon. I hope that you um, enjoy it. I hope you enjoy your early episodes, your free stickers, and any other perks. An exclusive episode every month? Okay, anyway, let's get into it. We're talking today about the Savopolis family. Savopolis. Are we in Germany? No, we're in Washington, D.C. I don't. Savopolis. Savopolis. Say it correctly. Savopolis. Let's get into the show. These people are waiting. Okay, so Savas and Amy Savopolis met when they were both attending the University of Maryland. Savas had a huge crush on Amy, but Amy wasn't really interested, and this went on for about four years, all through college. And then finally, Savas asked Amy out, and she actually said yes. So they started dating, they fell deeply in love, and eventually they got married in a beautiful Greek Orthodox wedding. They ultimately settled down in Washington, D.C. They had three children together, two daughters, Abigail and Katerina. What I love year that are name. we in? Katerina. I love that name. We're in 2015. Okay, I don't like when you don't tell me what year right out the gate. Okay, Austin. So anyway, we're in 2015. We've got two daughters, Abigail and Katerina, and later they had a son, Philip, who they affectionately called Flip. I so like cute. And he looked just like his dad, too. There's going to be pictures on the Mom and Mystery page. But um, he's a real cutie. Looks just like his dad. Flip. Same glasses, same smile. So cute. So Savas's father owned a company in D.C. called American Ironworks, and Savas eventually became the CEO and president of that company. And this company played a huge role in building the Verizon Center in D.C., which has been like hugely successful. Savas, he had a very strong work ethic, and the family lived in an upper-class, prominent area in D.C. called Woodley Park. Their home was this gorgeous three-story brick home worth about $4 million, equipped with a library, a music room. It was so stunning. And the neighborhood was this like really beautiful, mature neighborhood with these big trees. Um, it was very much like an American dream type of neighborhood. Your last couple episodes have been about some ballers. Have they? Yeah, the last episode was about a dude that did really well, too. Interesting. I don't know. Must just be a coincidence. So anyway, for about five years, they had a housekeeper named um, Vera Figueroa. And Vera moved from the U.S. I'm sorry, moved from El Salvador to the U.S. She was married with three children, and she worked 
really hard to pay for her kids' education and also to send back money um, to her family back in El Salvador. And she even had plans to return to El Salvador before the incident. So the couple was also very involved in their community. They contributed to charities, foundations. They attended church at St. Sophia Greek Orthodox Cathedral for about 10 years. And they regularly hosted parties in their home for for neighbors and friends. So they were super social beings, very well known, very well respected. While Savas worked, Amy tended to the home, taking care of her children and also volunteering at her kids' schools or raising money for their schools. She was super involved in her kids' life. Like, you call me a super mom, which I think is so sweet. This Amy was a super mom, big-time super mom. And um, one day on Facebook, her daughter Abigail wrote this tribute to her for Mother's Day, and she wrote, thank you for always believing in me, supporting me. Thank you for the early morning crafts, the upside-down clowns on my birthday, gingerbread decorating parties, and for always showing up. I love you so much. That's very nice. Yeah, so that just kind of gives you an idea of, you know, their family life. Mm -hmm. In May of 2015, the couple's older daughters were at their respective boarding schools, So Abigail was a senior at uh, Mercersburg Academy, which is an elite private school in Pennsylvania, and only one week away from graduating. She was so close to graduating. Her younger sister, Katerina, was a junior at Petty School near Princeton, New Jersey. So their younger brother, Philip, who was only 10 at the time, um, he was at home with his parents. He was still going to school. He was really into Harry Potter and go-kart racing. And not just go-kart racing as like a fun thing to do on a Friday night, but like he was actually trained and had his own go-kart. He had a coach. Like this was a sport to him. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like being a, like he's going to grow up and be a kick-ass driver. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the goal. Yeah. So through this training, he and his parents met a man named Jordan Wallace, and Jordan, over time, became the family's personal assistant. And then on May 13th of 2015, Savas was in Virginia preparing to open up a martial arts studio when he got a call from his wife, Amy, around 445. And we don't know exactly what was said during that phone call, but it it prompted Savas to come back home. And when Savas arrived back home around an hour and a half later, he walked into what could only be described as anybody's complete nightmare. His wife, son, and housekeeper Vera were all being held hostage after they had been savagely beaten by an intruder. Holy shit. The moment Savas walked in the door, he was struck by this intruder and tied to a chair. So I'm going to detail everything that happened over the next, um, I guess, 12 or 14 hours, 15 hours. So at about 8.30 that night, Savas called their personal assistant, Jordan Wallace, that I just told you about, and he didn't answer. So Savas left him a voicemail asking him to go to American Ironworks to pick up a package that he was waiting on and bring it to their home. He didn't sound concerned in this voicemail. He never indicated that anything was wrong. He even kind of sounded upbeat in this voicemail. Then later, Savas called his home security company to ask how he could access the security camera footage at his home, like where he could find it and how he could access it. Then at 9.14 p.m., 
Amy called Domino's and ordered a pizza to be delivered. But she told them to ring the doorbell but leave the pizzas at the door because she was inside tending to a sick child. And this raised no alarms to the people at Domino's. They did confirm that Amy called. She placed the order. They delivered it just like she said. Rightfully so. She didn't raise any alarms. Right. I mean, it's not... I guess now it's even more common with COVID times for people to just, you know, leave, leave the pizza at the door. She even said that there would be an envelope with cash in it outside the front door for the tip. I don't think any of that's crazy. Yeah, and it's not something I would like think of to do, but I mean, I don't know. I guess it just is what it is. So then at 9.30 p.m., Savas tried to contact their second housekeeper, Nellie Gutierrez, who also worked for the family for years, and she was actually the one that introduced the family to Vera, so that's how Vera got that job. But... um he tries calling Nellie and tells her not to come to work tomorrow and that she wouldn't need to come in until the following Monday. He left her a voicemail telling her that Amy was sick, but that Vera was there. Her phone was just dead. So I'm going to play you the voicemail that um, Savas left for Nellie. Amy is in bed tonight and she was this So I hate that voicemail because in the background you can hear screaming, mm-hmm. and it sounds like it's Philip in the background screaming. Does it sound like screaming like a kid playing, or does it sound like screaming like a no? Kid? It sounds like screaming like a kid is being tortured. Oh man! Yeah. So when I first heard it, and I I would play it again, but I don't I don't like listening to it. So if you want to listen to it again, you can just rewind. But um, to know that this family was being held hostage and they were being tortured by this intruder who who we have found later, and I'll introduce you to him later, but just to know the terror they had to be feeling when they're forced to make these phone calls and forced to make, make it seem like everything is okay and everything is normal. I mean, it had to just be terrifying. I was expecting this thing to go on a whole curveball to where it was like, Something Somehow within am. the family. Yeah. No, it's not at all, unfortunately. So Amy later texted Nellie also to make sure that she did not come to the house. And Nellie said this was really odd because neither her nor Vera ever spent the night at the house. So that kind of raised a little bit of alarm bells. But she never got that message until the next day when she was getting ready to go there. And she did respond to Amy and said, hey, I don't plan on coming until Monday. But I mean, like... Why would you think anything different? It's Amy right. and it's Savas. There's like, no reason They're the to ones making these phone calls. So the next morning around 7 a.m., Savas called Jordan about the package, and he also called the CFO of the company asking for $40,000 in cash to be withdrew or withdrawn from the bank. And he claimed that it was for a piece of equipment that he had found at an auction. And there is actually uh, like security camera footage of the CFO and Jordan Wallace at the bank withdrawing the cash. And Jordan later made a comment that you know he had never seen that much money in his life. And you can see these huge stacks of all 100s going into the CFO's pocket. So at 10.15, Savas told Jordan to put the package in the front seat of their red sports car that he had parked in the garage but told him, do not knock because he would be on a conference call. Then Vera's husband and daughter... All believable and like set up to sound right. Yes. And 
maybe alarming when you stack it all up, but sure. when you put yourself on the other end of the phone, nothing's alarming. Yeah. And I just want to throw this out there right now before I forget, because I might forget later. But, you know, there was one guy that acted alone, allegedly acted alone. And I say allegedly as in we don't know that there was somebody else. Like we know this one guy did it, but uh, we don't know if he had someone with him. And I'm just thinking, no way was this guy smart enough to come up with all these things. It makes me think that he had to have given this family a sliver of hope that if they just cooperated, then they would be fine. Mm -hmm. And that it's actually Savas and Amy coming up with the ideas like, you want a pizza? I'll order you pizza and I'll just tell them I can't come to the door because I have a sick kid. Or, you know, Savas saying, you want the package? I'll just tell them to put it in the car and not to knock because I'll be on a conference call. Like, you have to wonder if maybe these ideas came from them thinking that... Right. Makes sense. They would end up okay. So um, later that day, Vera's husband and daughter showed up at the Savopolis house, worried because she never came home the night before, and she wasn't answering her phone. So they walk up to the front door, but nobody answered after he rang the doorbell. Although he did say that he could hear dogs barking from inside and what sounded like furniture being moved around or like shuffling around or maybe a chair being dragged across the floor. But like he couldn't hear anybody talking. He just noticed somebody is in there. And then right after they leave, Savas calls Vera's husband to tell him that Vera and Amy were really sick. And I've read conflicting reports. I've either read that they were at a hospital or they were getting ready to go to a hospital, but that he wasn't sure which hospital, so he would call him back with that information. But Savas never called him back. At 10.26, Jordan texted Savas. Is this 10.26 p.m. or a.m.? A.m. Next morning. Yes. So um, 10.26 a.m., Jordan texts Savas saying, package delivered. And then around noon, just an hour and a half later, neighbors noticed a black man with dreadlocks entering the garage, but they couldn't tell if he opened it himself or had a garage door opener or if maybe somebody else opened it for him. And then finally at 1.20 p.m., a neighbor called 911 to report smoke and fire billowing out of the windows from the family's home. When firefighters arrived, they found the family and Vera Found, beaten, and stabbed before no all way. being set on fire in the home. Oh my gosh. Vera even suffered from a heart attack during the attack, being literally scared to death. But amazingly, her DNA had been found on a nearby baseball bat, indicating that she actually tried to fight back at one point. And we don't know if this is, we don't know when this would have happened, but it's just what I imagine is this heroic woman trying to protect the family that she's been working for for so long by just like maybe taking this back this bat and sneaking up on him or something Mm -hmm. just to know that she tried is just so sad gosh that's terrible but i mean what a hero though for trying Mm -hmm. we know she tried so investigators on the scene also noted excuse me hold on okay sorry about that i get a little upset because some of these stories are really sad but um anyway Investigators on the scene also noticed a blue Porsche, or Porsche, how do you say it? I just say Porsche. I think when people say Porsche, it's weird. Anyway, a blue Porsche uh, missing from the family's garage, which was later found in a church parking lot in Maryland, completely engulfed in flames. So their main objective now was to figure out who the hell did this and why. 
So a nationwide manhunt ensued, and police urged the public to contact um, a tips hotline with any information they might have. And meanwhile, as they're gathering evidence, they come across the pizza that Amy had ordered the night of the 13th. And in the pizza box remained one half-eaten piece of pizza. And when they tested that pizza for DNA, they were able to find that it matched a man named Darren Went. No way. His pizza gave him away? Pizza. That's wild. Yeah, a piece of pizza. They also found his hair in multiple rooms of the house. So Darren Went. He moved to the U.S. from Guyana in 2000 and worked as a welder at American Ironworks from 2003 to 2005. Makes sense why he'd know where they live and know all the stuff about them. Yes. And he only worked there for two years. He was fired for reasons that we don't know, but um, he was recruited to the U.S. Marine Corps but was dismissed before he completed his training for medical reasons. But he also had a deep criminal, criminal record that included his own family, his own dad, filing a restraining order against him. It also included second-degree assault, malicious destruction of property, burglary, theft, assault, a sexual offense, and weapons possession. Good Lord. So as years passed, his own family, and I'm talking about like during his time in the U.S., okay, as the years went on while he was here, his own family described him as being arrogant, aggressive, always looking for a fight. In one report made by a past girlfriend, Darren allegedly made threats to her and her family and told her that he was good with a knife and could kill easily. And then he busted through the back of a car window. And there's like evidence of all of this. In 2010, he made a return to American Ironworks with a machete, a BB gun, and a beer. And he just, like, was standing outside of the building. I don't know what he was saying, what he was doing, but it was very bizarre, obviously. And for that, he was only charged with having an open container. And he was fined $919. And that was in 2010, so five years before this incident. So it's like, clearly he's, he's holding a grudge. Yeah, and been hanging around for a while. Yeah, and then just, like, go get a different fucking job. Like, he was a welder for American Ironworks. But he could have done other things. Like, go do something for yourself instead of just holding these grudges and Mm -hmm. letting these fester. I don't know. But anyway, just uh, five days after the fire on May 19th, the DNA was matched to Darren and police start narrowing in on where he could be. Within 48 hours, they get a hit that maybe, not maybe, that he was in New York visiting his girlfriend. He had taken her on a shopping spree paid her credit cards off, and they were just living the high life. And when they were back at her apartment later that evening, they were watching the news coverage because by now this story had spread nationwide. And what do you know? Darren Wint's face is plastered on the TV right in front of him and his girlfriend. While they were watching it? Yes. He probably had no idea that they were onto him that quick because this is literally Five days after the murders, and they is already it, it, know that it's him. Do they know? Do you have this evidence? Because I mean, I'm just kind of skipping here, but sure. did the girlfriend later say that they were watching it? Yes. Wow. Yeah, she later testified against him. Wow. Yeah. So he takes a $900 taxi from New York all the way back to DC. And his intent was to go to his father's house. And his cousins and brother knew what was going on knew that he was coming back, but they didn't tell him that, like, they knew 
what he did. Mm-hmm. They hired their own lawyer and devised a plan to turn Darren in to the police the moment he arrived. Good. But Darren didn't go straight to his dad's house. Thursday, May 21st, just one week after the murder, they tracked Darren down to a Howard Johnson hotel in D.C. And police actually are like surveillancing the area and they witness him leaving and what they suspected was at least one of two vehicles. One was a white Chevy Cruze that had Darren along with three women. And then in the other was a large box truck. Like it looked like something you would rent from U-Haul, but it wasn't from U-Haul. Um, and in it was Darren's younger brother, Darrell and his cousin. So police start following both vehicles and even had an eye in the sky with a police helicopter tracking their movements. And then with direction and precision, seven unmarked cars pull up on the two vehicles and perform this maneuver where they essentially block both cars in on all sides. So like there's a car in front of the box truck and behind the box truck, which is also in front of the cruise. And then there's a car behind the cruise, and then there's cars on both sides. Like, mm-hmm. they completely boxed them in. It was actually kind of cool to see, like, the graph of how they did it. So they immediately put Darren under arrest and searched his vehicle, which is when they found an iPad that belonged to the Savopolis family, we believe, or it could have been one that he purchased with all his cash, but I, I don't know for sure. They also found clothing, two knives, cash, and thousands of dollars in money orders. In the box truck, they also find thousands of dollars, all in $100 bills wadded up in like the door side pocket. And they also find a crumpled piece of paper with an address written on it that said 300 Indiana Avenue. And remember, it was his brother and cousin driving that box truck. And that address was the headquarters for the D.C. police. So maybe the brother and cousin really were planning on bringing Darren to the police. Right. Darren is brought in. He's charged with four counts of first-degree murder. But you know this story doesn't end that easily. Before trial, Darren's former lawyer, Robin Ficker, who defended him in the past, goes on this public crusade in the defense of Darren Wint. And I can't help but wonder if he just did this for publicity because he's going on like Nancy Grace and all these like crime news shows. Mm-hmm. And he's claiming that... First of all, he represented him for like some traffic infractions, okay? And he claimed that his first impression of him was that he wouldn't hurt a fly, that he was a very nice person, and he's someone who he would allow his grandmother to have tea with. What? Do you hate your grandmother? Like, why? What the heck? That doesn't make any sense. And then through these poorly made dentures, he exclaims that Darren doesn't even like pizza. He never eats pizza. Darren Darren doesn't like pizza. Robin, the DNA test determined that was a lie. I need one of those, like, Mari sound bites. Uh That was a lie. So the trial begins on September 11th of 2018, and his defense was that his brothers, Stefan and Darrell Wint, conned him into being at the Savopolis house so that they could use his minivan in whatever it was they were trying to do. So he's totally trying to pin it on More his More blame family. it on other people. Yeah. As always. 
His own stepmom testifies that she had no idea where he was during the time that he was at the Savopolis house, like during that time frame, no idea where he was. His ex-girlfriend detailed the shopping spree that Darren took her on after the murders. Is this the black guy with dreads that they saw going in the house? Yes, it okay. is the same guy. And in the pictures, okay, he has remember. the dreads. Like, gotcha. it, ma- it, it is a match. Um, and his Then his own brothers take the stand. What amazes me is that the the prosecuting attorneys used his own family against him because his own family was willing to testify against him. They knew, like, what a bad guy he was. So um, Stefan goes first, and he proves to the jury and the judge that he is nothing like his low-life brother. He has a decent job, he works really hard, and he has proof from his job that that's where he was, May 13th and 14th. He was at work. Then Darrell, Darrell went, takes the stand. And on the stand, he looked Darren right in the eyes and basically called him out saying, I cannot believe you're doing this to me. I'm your brother. Right in front of everybody. It got like kind of heated for a second because Darren just looked at him and didn't... Like, had nothing to say. Stone cold. No emotion. But when his ex-girlfriend got on the stand and started detailing the shopping spree and everything, she started to cry, which made Darren cry. Darren started crying because of that. So it's just like... Dude, you're weird. I can't. I can't. So anyway, then in a Hail Mary, they call, the defense calls Darren Went to the stand. And I know you don't know a whole lot about true crime, but when somebody, like the reason Casey Anthony didn't take the stand is because she likely would have perjured herself and screwed up the story, butchered the story. Screwed up her story. And then you're allowing your client to also get drilled by the prosecuting attorney. You don't, oh, Hank, you don't just go on the stand to answer to your own lawyer. You have to answer to both sides. Mm -hmm. So anyway, for about five hours, he was drilled by the defense and the prosecuting attorneys. He remained very calm. He had an answer for absolutely everything, but he stuck to the theory that his brothers were the ones who brought him to that house. So, I don't know. I mean, do you believe he could have done this alone, or do you believe that he could have had help? I think he did it by himself. Yeah, see, and I do too. I believe. I think he did it by himself, and with him, him knowing the family, like you said earlier, he was giving them hope. Yeah. Like, it just all kind of comes together. Like, maybe they were like, listen, Darren, like, hey, we'll, we'll help you out. We'll do this as smooth as possible. What do you want? Is it cash you want? Mm-hmm. I'll call and I'll get it. Yep, I'll get the security taken. Are you hungry? Like, kind of like you were saying, I yeah. almost believe that. But, but at the same time, the only thing is at the same time, I mean, I don't, if so, you got to think, like, was DNA, do you know, this may be something you don't know, was DNA found all over the house or was it just found in like one room? So it was found in multiple rooms and they tried to pin it on his brother, Darrell, but um, the thing is, if you share DNA, then like... Those hair strands, I guess they found these random hair strands in other rooms, and they tried to pin that on Durrell. But if you have the same mother or something along, I'm probably butchering, butchering this science, so I apologize. Something genetic, though. But yeah, like it could have belonged to both of them is what I'm getting at. The only reason so I think, yeah. that was kind of their, their Hail Mary, was that they're like, well, I mean, I guess if it could have been your brother, you can pin it on your brother, you know. Right. I, I would think of somebody doing this operation. It's like you'd almost have to keep them. There's a mom, a dad, a son, mm-hmm. just them three. Yeah. You'd almost have to keep them in one room. 
Well, and that's the thing. So they ended up finding that Philip was in his own room, like his own separate room when he was killed. And then his parents and Vera were in their own room when they were killed, which breaks my heart even more because like who went first and who had to hear the other get killed. That, that is horrible. Just horrible. So on October 25th of 2018, Darren was ultimately found guilty on 20 counts of kidnapping, extortion, and murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility for parole. He has tried appealing his case, but it's been unsuccessful. And the house that this whole thing happened in has um, eventually, it was eventually demolished. And the plot of land where the beautiful home once stood was sold. So um, since then, I guess the girls, Abigail and Katerina, have been left, um, you know, on their own. That part really breaks my heart, but I'm glad they at least have each other. Um, I just can't even imagine losing your family in such a horrific way. But um, yeah, that's the story. I know that one was really sad. Sorry for crying. I hope it didn't like make anyone else cry. But um, yeah, it was a big bummer. So I had a suggestion from Betty Teddy, I believe it was. Who said that I should... One of our listeners, just so you guys know. Yeah, she's one of our listeners, one of our Patreons, um, and one of my friends. And she suggested that next time I do an episode similar to, like, J.C. Lee Dugard or... um, Oh my gosh, I can't think of her name now. But the girl that was taken to uh, Utah. And uh, Smart, Elizabeth Smart. Um, Anyway, something that has a happy ending, a true crime story, but with a happy ending. So that is what I'll be working on for next week, just so you know, so that you you won't have to end on a sad note. Good call, Betty Teddy. Good little change up. Yes. So anyway, we hope that you'll come back to listen to that. And until then, thank you so much for listening. Mystery out. Bye.